0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles there on the chairs in front of you, it's on page 1718, 1718, and we're in Acts chapter 15. For those of you that maybe haven't been with us, we've been studying in the book of Acts, and so let me try to catch you up to speed somewhat. We just wrapped up uh, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey where they were traveling around sharing the gospel in new areas, specifically to Gentiles, which was a new thing for the church at this time. Uh, and when we last left them, they had made their way back through Galatia and Pamphylia and they finally boarded a boat in a town called Adaliah. And that took them back across the Mediterranean Sea until they eventually found themselves back in Syrian Antioch in the church where they had been sent out probably at least two years prior. So this is a longer trip. And there in Antioch, verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 27 tells us that they shared all that, had, all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And verse 28 tells us that they were with uh, the brothers and sisters there in Antioch for some time. We then move into chapter 15. And in contrast to this scene of, of reveling in and rejoicing in the work, that these brothers had fulfilled in response to the the influx of the Gentiles into the growing church, Acts 15 begins with this phrase, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we've seen since chapter three in the book of Acts that wherever the gospel goes, there is opposition to it. It shows up in many different forms. It shows up in religious authorities. It shows up in lying church members, disputes about benevolence gifts, imprisonment by hostile governments. It shows up in murder, stoning, false prophets, false gods, and more. And this opposition, it comes from within the church and it comes from without the church. And alongside all of these previous threats that we've seen, both from within and without, we could say that the issue here in Acts chapter 15, this possible point of schism and division within the church, this could be the most significant threat that the church has faced up to this point. And it's a threat that comes from within the church itself, from within brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that may not be surprising as you would first think. Because opposition from our enemies, while it's difficult, it's expected. And we can weather opposition from our enemies because we can hold tight to one another. We can hold tight to those that love us. But when a threat comes from among those that you consider your your friends and your partners and even your your family, then there's a greater possibility for that obstacle to, to stop you in your tracks and to just tear you apart if there's a threat from within that strikes at the very heart of who you are as as friends or as a family, then it seems almost inevitable that that's going to result in anger and division and destruction of a family or of a friendship or even of a church. Sadly, many of us know that from experience. We know that the, the threats and the storms that come within our own families or within friendships or, or within churches, that those sometimes are the most difficult to weather. Splits that we face amongst those we love are so hard. We know about division too within our nation As a nation, we've been witnessing strong division and disagreement on a variety of issues. Our current political climate is so filled with anger and accusations that little more than than name calling and blame shifting seems to be happening in Washington. And the advent of social media and cable news means that we're all caught up in this mess much more than we want to be. And so here we all sit in a nation, united as Americans, but divided, it seems, on almost every other issue, including issues that are at the heart of who we are as a nation. And as we slowly move further and further from one another and deeper and deeper into our own echo chambers, we're all wondering if any peace or any progress will ever be made again in our country. Is there any hope of resolution? It's that kind of apparently unresolvable conflict that could have found its way into the very foundation of the early church. And as we enter into Acts 15, we're met with a distortion of the gospel from within that was strongly threatening to to splinter the church from the inside out, to just break it completely apart. And as everything we'll watch comes to a head in Jerusalem, we find a group of people, a wonderful, beautiful group of people who are so zealous to keep the gospel pure, but are also zealous to keep the unity of the followers of Jesus Christ. They love the truth and they love one another. They love God and they love each other. And when everything else is pulling at them and threatening to pull them apart, they are trying to hold both of those things together. And the issues that they're facing, issues that were fueled by the world and the flesh and the devil himself were more complicated and more eternally important than immigration or healthcare or anything else that our nation is facing. And they, they had the potential to shut down the gospel and to shut down the church's progress. But by God's grace, they didn't. We've watched the, the church survive many issues. And as we enter into this, we say, can the church survive this? Can it get through this, this possible breakup? And if they're going to do it, it's going to take wisdom and grace that only the Spirit can give. And that's what we find here. If Acts tells us the story of the actions or the acts of the apostles empowered by the Spirit, who was sent by the ascended Jesus, then what we find in Acts 15, as the church holds together in the midst of contention, is a clear work of God's grace and God's power. And it teaches us this. It teaches us that when division threatens we as followers of Jesus must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When division threatens, we as followers of Jesus must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, if you've never heard that phrase before, you might think, I sound really weird. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. If you're not familiar with that phrase, it's, it's how Jesus told his disciples to deal with, with conflict in their ministry. He was sending them out and he said, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. And so when you go out and people are trying to, to mess you up and divide you and, and break things up, when you face conflict, you need to be wise. You need to be crafty and cunning and innovated, wise like serpents. But also you need to be harmless. You need to be peaceful and diplomatic and calm. And so too, we as followers of Jesus are to be serpent doves in facing conflict. Kids, I know some of you like to draw during the service. Wouldn't that be a fun picture to draw? A serpent dove. What does that look like? Show me if you draw a serpent dove. I'd love to see it. (laughs) But that's what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be wise as serpents, and harmless as doves. When division threatens, we as followers of Jesus must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is so practical, isn't it? Because we all face conflict on a daily basis. And if you've been in the church for any period of time, you know that there are always threats to division within the church. And sometimes, if we're honest, we as Christians and we as churches are just as bad, if not worse, than everyone else in the world at dealing with conflict wisely and harmlessly and peacefully. But Jesus told us this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called what? Children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called children of God. He says that being a peacemaker in this world sets you apart uniquely as a child of God. That peacemaking, being at peace with one another, is so core to who God is that when we are peacemakers, people will look at us and say, well, they must be children of God. Because that's what God does. He makes peace. Is not Jesus the great peacemaker? We were enemies of God because of our sin. We were lost and hopeless to make peace with God through our good works or through our groveling. But Jesus came and through his death and his resurrection, he has satisfied the wrath of God and he has fulfilled all righteousness so that by faith we can become children of God. We can be restored to a right and peaceful relationship with our creator. God has made peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus. And in a world that has no clue what peace is or what God is really like, when we as God's people and as God's church deal with threats of division wisely and harmlessly, we show people what God is like. We show people what our Father is like. And when we fail to do that, we make the world wonder how we are any different from anyone else and we don't show them what the world what, what our father is like and how he can make peace in in the worst circumstance possible. Acts 15 is a key chapter, not only in the book of Acts, but it's going to open up doors of understanding for you for the entire New Testament, because what they're going to deal with in the book of Acts, in, in, in Acts chapter 15, is something that is dealt with in almost every letter of the New Testament. Much of it comes back to the decisions that were made here in Acts chapter 15, and so we're going to spend at least two weeks thinking through it. And there's a couple different themes that are here in the book. One is there's theological issues that the decisions that, the, that this church council is going to make, and we're going to deal with that next week. Um, but today, I just want us to think about how wisely and peacefully the men and women of the early church dealt with a conflict that could have destroyed them before they even got off the ground. As I was reading this this week, I was so struck by how wise and gracious and peaceful they were and and at how practical their actions and attitudes are for each of us who want to be peacemakers in the world and for us as a church that, that wants to be at peace that wants to hold to the truth but also hold tightly to one another and so as we read acts 15 1 through 35 you're going to see these theological issues and know that we're going to hopefully deal with them next week lord willing but i want us to think about how the church acted wisely how they were like they were wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And so as I read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, see if you can spot the ways that the church is acting wisely and peacefully. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this The words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Just pause for a minute. This is a letter that's nearly 2,000 years old that's been preserved for us, sent to the churches. Isn't that amazing that we have this here? Here's what the letter said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So as we think about this idea, when division threatens, we as followers of Jesus must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And as we seek to apply it, we should also remember that that Luke's doing something particular in writing this chapter. Um, And he's, he's defending the church to Theophilus, who he's writing this to, as well as to the other readers of that day. And he's showing that the church that had been vilified by the culture and, and had been said that they were causing division amongst others, he's showing that they were not a source of conflict in the ancient world. And they weren't some subversive force that was trying to overthrow the, the Roman empire. Rather, he's showing that, that the church, all these things they're being accused of, in contrast, that they are the church leaders are wise and peaceful people who are just holding to the truth and they're trying to live at peace with one another and with the world around them. The threat we find that comes to the the church's doorstep arrived in Antioch in the form of individuals from Judea who came supposedly under the authority of Jerusalem, according to verse 24, and they walk into the church in Antioch, and they say to anyone who will listen to them, they say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these teachers from Judea were adding general adherence to the law of Moses and the act of circumcision in particular to the message of salvation that's found through faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They're teaching this in a church filled with non-Jewish Christians, a church filled with Gentiles who had never tried to keep the law of Moses, but had come to trust in Jesus as Savior. And they've come in and they're, they're preaching this. Now, before we give them too hard of a time for coming in, now, let's remember. First of all, it says that they are brothers. Um, well, it says some men, but later on, the, there's, the brothers are together. I should be careful there. Uh, but but let's remember though that that these these men had been underneath this teaching for centuries. That this is what they had been taught. That that they were to seek to please God through adherence to the law for centuries. They were seeking to be a nation that, that showed forth to the world what God was like through their ad- adherence to the law. That keeping the law was at the core of what it meant to be a Jewish person. And so it made sense to them that to follow Jesus, who is the promised Jewish Messiah, to follow him also meant to continue to follow Moses and to keep these laws. And it would have seemed so strange to them to say, we're just gonna set aside all of these things that we've kept for centuries and no one else has to do these things anymore. Alongside this this personal zeal was the, the offense of people claiming to follow Jesus as Messiah and then blatantly disregarding laws and practices that were so important to them, especially food laws, things that they were supposed to eat and not eat. And now they're surrounded by people that are calling themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, but are doing things in front of them that they think are just completely against what God would have them to do. Eating food that, that they still believe God has said, you're not supposed to eat that. And so we start to see this situation that there's these two groups coming together and it's, it's very difficult. And the church has two major concerns. The first is, what is the right doctrine? What's the right doctrine? What's, what's the right teaching on this? What does it mean to really follow Jesus? What does it mean to really be saved by Christ? Does it include adherence to the law? Do these people need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the food laws? And once we establish that, the second question is, well, what is right right practice? When we find out the right doctrine, then they're asking, so how, if that's the right doctrine, how do we bring these two groups together and how do we live at peace with one another? If we are part of the same group and we believe in the same Messiah, how are we going to live at peace with each other? Paul seems to have dealt with this already once before in Jerusalem, if I'm reading my timeline correct. Galatians 1 and 2 talks about a time where he confronted Peter, And even Barnabas, because of the way that they were acting around Gentile Christians, the way that they were aligning themselves with those from the church in Jerusalem and holding to the regulations and the law of Moses. And here, Paul and Barnabas, while they're still in Antioch, it says that, um, verse 2, they had no small dissension and debate with them. That means I think they had a pretty big debate. It It was a pretty big deal. And, and they are confronting these guys. They're talking to them and, and talking about how they are acting, or how, how they're, what they're proclaiming, is this the right doctrine? And they're saying this is not true. And they soon realize that this issue is much bigger than these guys here in Antioch, and we need to figure this out. And so the church sends Paul and Barnabas, along with some others, and they go down to Jerusalem. And they're going down to try and iron out exactly what the policy is on circumcision and on keeping the law of Moses when it comes to people who have come to faith in Christ. This is the first church council. So these brothers head out. And they, they go and, and they share along the way as they're going along this long journey down to Jerusalem. They're telling everyone that they come into contact with about how God's opening the door of the gospel to the Gentiles and everyone is is rejoicing. Everyone's responding with joy. God's opening the door to the Gentiles. And so we start to see that public opinion is excited about this, but how are we gonna deal with these two groups coming together? They finally get to Jerusalem and they're greeted by the church, the apostles and the elders. And we find that they're not greeted coldly, according to, to verse 4. Rather, they're, they're welcomed. Paul doesn't sort of stick out his hand to, to Peter to shake it, and Peter, you know, slough it off and say, I'm not shaking hands with you. No, th- there's, there's, there's no death stares. There's no crossed arms. These guys welcome one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul and Barnabas are welcomed with, with open arms. And I love how in the letter later on, it calls in verse 25, it said, they, they talk about their beloved Barnabas and Paul that there's there's love amongst these guys. There's not anger. Paul and Barnabas are welcomed with open arms. And so we find that when division threatens, we serpent doves who are trying to be wise and harmless, here's the first thought about how to resolve conflict well in church and in other relationships. The first is assume the best of people. Assume the best of our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we face conflict, we should always assume the best of people. In the book The Line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes and he tells uh, Lucy is, has told her siblings that she's discovered a magical world by walking through the back of a wardrobe. And none of them believe it. And, and she persists in telling the tale. And the two older children decide that they need to talk to someone older. And so they visit the professor who owned the house that they were staying in. And they tell him the details of the situation. And this is how the professor responds he says, There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, meaning she's crazy, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she's telling the truth. I I love that. Lucy is not a liar, and she hasn't lied up to this point, so let's assume she's not lying. In the discussion, you know, as we have discussions, sometimes when we have discussions and we endeavor to create peace in the church, sometimes these things are doomed from the start because everyone comes into the room having already decided that the other side is an enemy of the gospel or an idiot. And we get so upset that we fail to remember that those with whom we're disagreeing are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's so true in the church, and it's true in many of your relationships and your marriages and your friendships and other relationships, And if that's true, then we should assume that they, as spirit-indwelt children of God, are seeking the best for others and seeking to glorify and honor God. And even when we we disagree with those who are, are not believers, we can also assume that there's some common grace in this world that has kept people from being completely corrupt in their motives and wanting to hurt everyone around them. We could be proven wrong in both circumstances. But still, it's always good to assume the best of others, especially those of the household of faith, to walk into the room and welcome one another, to shake hands, to embrace, to be willing to have a conversation. So I encourage you, as conflict arises, I encourage us as a church, if conflict arises, assume the best of your brothers and sisters in Christ, even when you disagree. Of course, assuming the best of people doesn't mean that you ignore the real issues on the table, okay? verse five shows us that, that there, were, there were some who were not going to let this issue sort of dissolve or fade into the background. While the, these guys are being welcomed, they're bringing up the issue. And, and that's good. And that's right. We don't, we don't smile in each other's faces and then stab each other in the back later on. We don't, we don't ignore real issues. We don't just sweep them under the rug. We deal with them. So we we see the, this first council gathered together and they teach us that secondly, when we face conflict, not only do we assume the best of others, but we honestly and openly consider the issues. Honestly and openly consider the issue. Consider the conflict. Think about what's going on and be honest about it. You put all your cards on the table. You share what's troubling you, what concerns you. You share how you've been hurt. You share how you see the danger in this current issue and what the problems could be. And we lovingly tell people when we disagree with them. I don't know if you knew this, but disagreeing with someone doesn't automatically make them your enemy. I could tell you that the best breakfast in town is at North End Cafe. And you could say it's at Waffle House or at Wild Eggs or somewhere else. And you know what? We can still be friends. We can disagree about the best breakfast in town and still be friends. Now, of course, there's deeper issues than the best breakfast in town. I mean, not much deeper, but... I mean, a little deeper. There's deeper issues. But but just to say, we can disagree while discussing matters openly and honestly. I can tell you where I've seen this. I've seen this in the four elders of this church. By God's grace, we do this when we meet. I hope that the brothers would attest to this. But we all have opinions, we all have thoughts, we all have convictions, and we share them, and we share them openly. And sometimes, you know what, we disagree about things. Now, not core doctrinal things, but we do disagree. But when we walk away from those meetings, we walk away as, as brothers in Christ and as friends. So when you have conflict and when churches have conflict, the way to solve the conflict is not to hide what you're really upset about or to not say what you disagree on. It's to honestly and openly consider the issues. Don't hide your concerns and issues. That just sets you up for, later, for hurt later on. Remember the wisdom of Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If we really want to make peace and deal with issues that threaten to divide us in relationships or in churches, then we need to get the right people around the table and we need to bring up the issues and we need to honestly and openly consider what the matter is. This is true in all kinds of disagreements. Honesty and openness go a long way. But let me give you a a specific nugget that I think applies just to these, these church conflicts. And so the third lesson is let leaders lead. Let leaders lead. Verse 22 tells us, it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. But we should also notice that the whole church is not brought in on the discussion right from the very beginning. That's not to say that there weren't people within the membership of the churches that could have contributed positively to the discussion, but it's to acknowledge that the church, both in Antioch and in Jerusalem, had identified and set apart some leaders not to mention the apostles that Jesus himself had set apart. And they trusted these leaders to hold to the truth and to make the best decision for the unity of the churches. Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas and some others to Jerusalem where Peter and James and others were. And why did they do that? Because they trusted these guys. They trusted them to do what was right This reminds me of why we shouldn't be quick to lay hands on or set apart leaders because there's a deep responsibility and they make decisions for us. But it also reminds me that once we do set apart leaders, we need to trust that God is going to use them. We need to have faith that they can lead well. There will be times when a leader needs to be asked to step down. Hopefully that's rare. And hopefully we as churches and as the church at large can, can let our leaders lead. But problems and divisions come in churches very often when leaders are not allowed to lead. When everyone wants to make the decisions and everyone wants to have a hand in things, it becomes hard for the church to move forward. So take a step back and think about this, this gathering. Uh, presumably all the apostles are there. Think about that. All the apostles that had, that had walked with Jesus, except for uh, some had, had, were there in this room. Leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas are present. We hear speeches from, from Peter and, and Barnabas and Paul and, and James, Jesus' half-brother. And they're all appealing to each other as, as brothers. What a beautiful picture that is of these guys who had been gifted and set apart Leading and doing what God had called them to do on behalf of the churches that they loved. Wouldn't you have loved to been in that room? Just to hear how that went, to see how they interacted, to, to see the love that they had for one another, but the honesty that they had. There's a part that I wish I could have been there for. It's verse 12. It says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I love the picture of that. And it gives us a a fourth lesson that we can learn as churches and as Christians as we try to resolve conflict and deal with threats of division. It's this, be quiet and listen. In the midst of conflict and division, be quiet and listen. I can remember a teacher in grade school saying, when your hand goes up, your ears are closed. She meant that if you're raising your hand to ask a question or to to make a a comment, then you stop listening because all you're thinking about is what you're going to say when the teacher finally calls on you. I think that happens in disagreements that we have with with people sometimes. The only person we're listening to is ourselves and to our internal dialogue and to the great arguments that we're making outside of our mouths. But I love how these brothers, at, at, at a certain point, are silent, And they just listen to what the other people had to say. There were some deep points of tension here. I think some people had some major issues with Paul and Barnabas and what they had done taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But in the midst of that, they sat and they listened and they were ready to hear. So we learn that even when we are convinced we are right, as I'm sure that the Pharisees and others believed they were There's a time to close our mouths and open our ears. James, who here, he speaks last. He tells us in, in James 1.19 that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This group modeled that. I think the group, if you heard the reading from Joshua 22, didn't they model that? Boy, they were zealous for the truth when they showed up. at the the Jordan River, they were ready to to take people out because they felt like they had violated the the truth of what God, they had violated the law and they were zealous for keeping God's people pure. But when they showed up, they didn't just start killing people. They sat and they listened and they were honest and they, 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 they were quiet and they listened and it resolved the conflict. Being quiet and listening goes a long way. Sometimes we forget that. Of course, when James writes James 1.19, being quick to listen, I think he's talking about hearing the word of God specifically. And so fifth, as we deal with conflict within the church and even within our own lives, be led by the word and the spirit. Be led by the word of God and by the spirit. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, they're not seeking to offer up their own opinions, but they're trying to identify how they see the spirit working among them and consider what God's word has said to them. We'll we'll see that more next week, but you see how they're, they're they're looking for the movement of the spirit and they're looking at what God's word says. What a gift we have in the scriptures, especially when it comes to doctrinal disagreement. There's difficulty at times in understanding what the word says, but there's also great clarity on on core teachings of our faith. And so as we have disagreements, especially on doctrine, but in other areas as well, we need to let the Spirit and the Word rule over us as we seek to resolve conflict wisely and peacefully. Let the Spirit lead us. It doesn't say at any point here that they all paused to pray together, but if I know anything about the early church, that was the first thing that they did. And as we seek to resolve conflict, wouldn't that be the the wise thing to do to stop and ask the Spirit to lead in our discussions and to seek the wisdom of God's word? Not only in church disagreement, but in your home and other relationships, pause, pray, seek the wisdom of, of God's word. Let him guide you into peace. A few more, just quick thoughts. Not enough time to unpack all of these, but I'll give you a few more. Number six, know your audience and your influence. If there's disagreement, know your audience, know who you're talking to and know your level of influence among them. It's no surprise that Peter and James are the primary speakers here in Jerusalem because of their history with the Jerusalem church. Peter is the leader of the apostles. He's the one that's been given the keys of the kingdom by God. He has great authority in Jerusalem. And James, the Lord's half-brother, is highly respected there, it seems. It may even be that James was struggling with this issue a little bit more than others because he's struggling maybe to, to agree with exactly what's going on. It appears in Galatians that the men who were sent from Jerusalem that upset the faith of some people, it says that they were sent by James. And so James may have had trouble coming to terms with this issue, but when he gives his final opinion on the matter here, it has great weight amongst these folks. And we notice that Paul and Barnabas share, but they let Peter and James do the heavy lifting. And in fact, did you notice that Barnabas is listed first, verse twelve? They li- they listen to Barnabas and Paul. That's a that's change. Paul's usually the first guy, but Barnabas is speaking first because. Barnabas, remember, he's the son of encouragement. Paul's probably a little bit more fiery and a little bit more fired up about this whole thing. And, and his word may have been less divisive than, the, than, than Paul, uh, and especially here in Jerusalem. So the church is being wise. In the words of Jesus, they're being wise as serpents. I know that sounds strange, but that's what they're doing. This isn't sneaky, but, but it's crafty. Communication is a slippery thing. We need to understand the influence that we have in certain contexts or maybe the lack of influence that we have. We need to let the right people talk. And sometimes we need to be quiet because we're gonna cause more division than help. Sometimes that's hard, but I think we see some of Paul's maturity here. He's not just spouting off and saying everything that he thinks. He's letting other people talk and letting other people resolve the issue. So know your audience, know your influence. Again, quickly, seven, seek peace, even if it means personal sacrifice. Seek peace, even if it means personal sacrifice. Notice I'm not saying sacrifice of doctrine, sacrifice of truth, sacrifice of, of core principles, but rather personal sacrifice. Because I think the stipulations that the church lays out about sacrifices and things that people are to do, that for some people, that would just be a personal sacrifice. It's a way to make peace, and it's not a gospel issue. And there are times that when we are in conflict, we need to make compromises, not on the truth, but on our personal freedom, that we give up some of our rights for the sake of peace with one another. This is how we live at peace with each other, isn't it? If you're always seeking to get everything you want in every circumstance, then you're always going to be at war with other people. Seek peace, even if it means personal sacrifice. Number eight, write things down. I don't totally know the application of this, but write things down. I love the fact that they wrote a letter. They put this down in writing. This is maybe going a little bit beyond the text and application, but there is something about writing things down, writing a letter and sending it to someone to say, here's where we're at on things. But I also think for the church in particular, it's important to have things written down as a a record. Here's the decision that we made. It's in black and white. It's written right here so that you can see the decision we made. This is the tradition of the church. Here's a book, Creeds of the Churches. It's not a small book. Throughout history, the church has written stuff down. When there's disagreements, when they need to figure out what they believe about something, they said, you know what? Let's get a bunch of people that we trust in a room, make a decision, and write it down and send it to the churches and say, this is what we believe. There's something to that. And that still happens in our day and age because there's new issues that we face and new decisions that we need to make. I encourage you to look up some some creeds of the church and see how the church has dealt with issues throughout the centuries. Write things down, two more. Uh, Number nine, pursue face-to-face contact. Pursue face-to-face contact in conflict, being present is a big deal. Being physically in the same room is a big deal. The church in Jerusalem didn't have to send anyone with Paul and Barnabas. They could have just sent that letter, right? But what did they do? They sent two guys, two of their best guys, so that the believers in Antioch and all around would feel how important they were to the church at large. And they come and they communicate the love that the church in Jerusalem had for the church in Antioch in a way that just that letter could not. So we should remember that when we're dealing, especially with conflict, that, that a text message is not as good as a phone call. <laughs> and a phone call is not as good as sitting down and having a cup of coffee with someone, inviting them into your home and talking face to face with them. I can say things in text that I'd never say to someone's face. I'm sure we've all done that. But that personal contact, it keeps our anger in check. It helps us to see what we really believe. Nasty words are easy to type. They're harder to say when you're looking in someone's eyes. In conflict, do your best to be in contact with people and communicate the real love that you have for one another. A final thought. In the midst of conflict, ask what makes people glad or joyful. Ask what makes people glad or joyful. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean just people please. You know, Again, we're not talking about brushing issues under the rug. Don't just try to come up with a way to make people happy and then move on and not really deal with the conflict. But what's interesting to me is that when when the church resolves this conflict, what is the result? When they go back to Antioch, how does the church in Antioch respond? They rejoice. They are happy and excited that they have been welcomed into this circumstance. And I think there's a sense in which when we resolve conflicts in a way that honors God, the result is joy. The result is happiness and peace. If we resolve a conflict and the decision we come to kind of just makes everyone upset or sad, that could be the case. This is a little bit, you know, fluid, but there's a sense in which when the church in Antioch hears what happened, they are overjoyed at the decision that the church came to. And I think if we're really resolving conflict well and we've really dealt with issues and we've come to peace with one another, we're going to leave conflict in joy and in gladness at what God Has done. Now, we're coming back to Acts 15. So if you feel like we didn't deal with some of these deep theological issues here, please know we're going to to figure it out and uh, pray for me this week because some of them are a little hairy. Um, But I'll just say this. As we think about how beautiful the church is in resolving conflict, I would say Grace Fellowship Church, by God's grace, we presently have sweet unity and joy amongst us. And I praise God for that. That's a work of his spirit, that he's keeping us at peace with one another. We've known threats in the past, but right now I think we are at deep peace and unity. We also know that that threats to division will come, and the same grace that has kept us will also help us in those circumstances so that we can be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, led by God's spirit so that we can love God and love one another. And when we do that, remember this isn't just about resolving conflict. But we can, when we resolve conflict peacefully, both in, in churches and also in relationships, we can show the world that 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 in a, we can show a world that fights and argues and disagrees and is petty and ruthless. We can show that world what it looks like to be peacemakers. And if we can show the world what it looks like to be true peacemakers like Christ is, then we can tell them who Jesus is. And we can tell them about the one who has made peace between us and God. And that he is the one who has taught us how to do the same with one another.